Our reading can be found in uh, Mark 14, starting at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore witness, false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made of hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up and in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it? that these men testify against you. And he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the cock crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them. For you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the cock crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept.
Let's look at these uh, Bible verses together. And uh, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we are uh, coming to the end of our uh, really, you know, detailed study, probably in, in the Gospel of Mark. We've been at, at this for quite a while. And um, it's just brilliant that it's coming together at Easter time. And so we're in this section um, of the Gospel narrative known as the Passion, the Passion of the Christ. You know, it talks about the sufferings. That's what the word Passion means. And so over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus uh, sharing the Passover meal, the Last Supper, with his disciples. Um, and then a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus in the Garden uh, of Gethsemane, uh, praying and being arrested and betrayed by one of his closest friends. Uh, so this week then, it takes us to this time of, of trial, literally a trial that Jesus is, is having. And so what we'll see over the next few moments as we look at this text together, um, first of all, is the, the model of living the truth, right? So the model of living the truth the second thing we'll see is the warning of living the truth. And the third thing we'll see is the challenge of living the truth. So the model, the warning, and the challenge. Um, let's look first of all then at the model of living the truth. In verse 53, we see that Jesus has been led to the high priest. He's been arrested, of course, uh, probably roughed up a little bit, and then led to the high priest. Um, we're not exactly sure the location of this, but most likely it's part of the high priest's quarters, which would have formed uh, the wider sort of temple grounds, the temple precinct, um, if you like, in the middle of Jerusalem. And Jesus has been uh, focusing his ministry and his teaching around that area for, for quite a while, as we've been seeing over the last few weeks. And um, what we see here is a gathering of, of the council or the Sanhedrin, as they are known as, whether it's the whole lot of them, we're not sure, or just maybe a representation of that group, we're not sure. Uh, but we see here, you know, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes all coming together. And don't forget this is in the middle of the night. Right? This, is, this is not the ordinary time when a, uh, a rational, clear judgment um, should be sought and, uh, and, and carried out. It's in the middle of the night. And we see here, uh, according to Mark, anyway, who put all this together, that they, they were gathered together um, so that they might find him guilty. It says that in verse 53. That was their objective, to, to find him guilty, to get testimony against him so they can put him to death. That was their end goal. So judicial process, uh, ordinary means that all went out of the window. The usual decorum has all gone. They just convened to find him guilty so they might kill him. And so they were willing to dispense with all the traditions and the norms. They should have waited till morning, according to the Mishnah, you know, the, uh, the Jewish commentary on the law at that time. And yet there they are in the middle of the night just trying to find reasons to kill him. They wanted his blood. And as you, as you can probably guess, if this is the first time you've read that, or maybe you're familiar with this account, it's very unjust what happens uh, to Jesus that night. You've got the, uh, the, the hierarchy, I suppose, the top the top people from all of the Jewish religion, all the scholars, all the lawyers gathered together against Jesus, working the angles, manipulating everything they can in order to try and find him guilty. Whatever it takes, they are willing to break the rules, to bend them, to twist them, to make them up as they go along, anything to get him guilty. And as we see, they couldn't get it to stick. In verses 56 through to 58, you know, talks about multiple false witnesses, you know, coming together with stories. But it says that their testimony did not agree. And they had to go in verse 59 as well. Well, we heard that Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple and then rebuild it again. But even that, they couldn't get their story straight. They weren't having much luck at all. But they're just so crooked, so unjust. 
Yeah, and this, this should have been the, the, well, this was the religious leadership. This is like the best of the best uh, in the eyes of the people. And look at the games they're playing, religious people. And it seems to be then at the climax of the trial. Uh, we see that in verses 60 through to 62. The high priest stood up. You know, he seems to be pretty frustrated, exasperated at how it was going so far. Jesus' lack of cooperation, you know, like those uh, um, documentaries where the individual being interviewed by police just says, no comment, no comment. So frustrating. And he stands up and you could just imagine him spitting and, you know, ah, uh, just full of grief. And he says to Jesus, what have you to say about all this? What have you to say about these accusations? Have you no comment to make are you not the Christ he says the son of the blessed in other words are you not the Christ the son of God Jesus speaks for the first time very instructive he speaks for the first time throughout all of this and he simply says I am it's almost as if Jesus chose his indictment you know he chose the charges to answer yes to Are you the Christ, the Son of God, Son of the blessed? I am. That was a breakthrough moment for all gathered there. They've probably been going at it, you know, hammer and tongs all night. You could just imagine the scene. Breakthrough in verse 63. Ha, says the high priest, you've all heard it. Everybody's here has heard it. Blasphemy. Usually it takes the evidence of two or three witnesses to condemn somebody. But here you had probably 20, if not 30, or even 70 in the Sanhedrin, all hearing Jesus' answer. We've got him, lads. The high priest says, tore his clothes in anguish and grief. Ah, blasphemy. What then is your decision? As if we are surprised by their answer in verse 64. Condemn him, they said. And they condemned him as deserving of death. See, the, the, the laws for blasphemy, uh, according to the Old Testament, uh, was that an individual who was guilty of blasphemy, who was saying that they were God or speaking against the name of God, would have been stoned to death. And then they would have taken the corpse of that individual and hung them on a tree for all to see. This is how seriously we take the charge of blasphemy. How dare you speak in the name of God? That's what will happen to you. For now, it says they were content to mistreat him, to mock him, it says down there in verse 65, to slap him, strike him, cover his face, prophesy, beat him up, ready for the main event. Just to be clear, what we're reading here is Jesus accepting the charge and claiming finally to be Christ and Son of God. Um, if you're maybe, maybe or maybe not familiar, but the word Christ uh, means the anointed one, the chosen one. You know, uh, in other words, the Messiah. It's the same word in two different languages. Jesus, the Christ, the chosen one of God. And the idea with the Messiah was it was an individual <clears throat> predicted in the Old Testament as somebody who was going to come in God's name, God's chosen leader to restore God's kingdom, to bring his blessing, his reign again on the earth. That's what the Messiah was to do. And to claim that you were the Messiah was a, an unusual thing. Um, but it wasn't completely unheard of. 
that even the Bible in the New Testament shows us there was a number of people who, who claimed to be somebody, claimed to be the Messiah. And they, they often led a little uprising, maybe a little skirmish, a revolutionary, and then it was put down viciously by often the Roman authorities. So to claim you're a Messiah was unusual, but it often just meant you're a troublemaker or a revolutionary who had a very high opinion of yourself. But far more scandalous than that was Jesus' apparent claim here to be, yes, I am the Son of God. He admitted to that charge openly. The high priest's reaction here says it all, shows what they heard when Jesus said, I am. This man is accepting the allegation that he believes he is God. You've heard everything you need. It's just astonishing um, that somebody who is a human being would legitimately claim to be God. This is the first time that Jesus has admitted or uh, has confessed to being the Son of God in the whole gospel. Others have said it about him, but this is the first time Jesus has sort of fairly well accepted it in public. Yes, indeed. I'm Christ and I am God. And ironically, the words came from the high priest. Actually, Jesus just said, I am. But the words, are you the Christ, the Son of God, came from the high priest who didn't believe a thing that he was the Christ or the Son of God. But that's where it came. But today, you know, if anyone claims to be God, um, we, we dismiss them instantly. We dismiss them as, as, as just pure, you know, pure nonsense or, or, or most likely they've got some mental health problems. If you go around saying, you're God, we don't, we don't take such people necessarily seriously. We, we say, you've got to go and get help for that. Go and see a doctor. And, and by and large, it's because no one has any evidence to back it up. You know, you make a claim like that, you've got to back it up with something. So the question, I suppose, that we should ask ourselves this morning as we, we look at the trial and so we sort of look over the shoulders of the Sanhedrin at Jesus, should we, should we take Jesus' claims seriously? Um, should we take them at face value or should we just dismiss them as the words of a lunatic or someone who's just spouting nonsense? Well, we have seen um, over the months that we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, we've certainly seen that Jesus has acted as if he was God. Uh, not just thought, you know, in some sort of grandiose way, but, but he actually forgave sins. Right at the start, they, you know, the, the other uh, religious leaders with him at the time said, who can forgive sins but God himself? And there was Jesus forgiving sins. Um, he's healed the sick. God the healer. He, he has demonstrated mastery over the created order. He was able to speak to the wind and the waves, be still, and they fell silent. And do you remember the, the apostles in the boat with him said, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who else has that power to speak to the created order? And it happens. Not only did Jesus act as if he was God, he spoke as if he was God. His words uh, uh, were, were full of authority. It says there at the beginning of Mark's gospel, they were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one with authority, not like the scribes, not like the experts, the theologians. Jesus taught with one who has authority. We've seen Jesus dominating evil, casting out evil spirits and demons from people. And so we have in the scriptures uh, masses of documentary evidence that Jesus 
behaved as if he was God, he spoke as if he was God, and he actually acted as if he was God. And it seems to me the obvious conclusion is that he is who he says he is. And so if Jesus is God, then that does leave us with a slightly uncomfortable truth. Um, because if he is God, then his words and his actions have some claim over you. Um, and how you live and, and what you do and what you say. If Jesus is God, then that changes everything. But if, if Jesus is God, that means he can forgive your sins. And, and if Jesus is God, that means he can declare you to be completely free. Yeah? And if Jesus is God, that means he does listen to your prayers, even if you feel like they're not being listened to. If he's God, he can hear your prayer. If he's God, he can send his Holy Spirit to you when you ask him. But if he's not, if he's none of these things, if he's not God, then we're just lost. And all this is pointless, quite frankly. I'm laboring this. Why am I laboring this? I'm laboring this because for those who uh, consider themselves to be followers of Jesus, we see the claims that Jesus makes of himself in Scripture. He declares that he is Christ and God. And if you are a follower of Jesus, as am I, so must we therefore declare and proclaim that Jesus is Christ and God. Right? If he did it, and we're his followers, then we should also be doing the same. So, so the church and, and, and us as a foundation, we're not here to make up doctrines about Jesus at all. We're not, we're not here to, to, to make up ideas and, and share them. No, we're here to simply reflect what Jesus is sharing about himself and teaching of himself. And so our task is to continue and say Jesus is God and Jesus is Christ. And that changes everything. We're to lay out the implications of what that means for, for a lost and, and hungry world. We're to give our, 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 our allegiance to him. We're to call others to, to give their allegiance to Jesus. To follow him. That's what we're to do. But it will get you into trouble. Please be clear about that. Look at where the truth led Jesus. That's why he's the, the model of living truth here in our text. Yet we see Jesus speaking the truth, being the truth in the middle of the most hostile and oppressive environment, humanly speaking, he has yet been in, in the middle of all this controversy, in the middle of all these lies and manipulation, and yet he stands there with remarkable composure. There's this beautiful demeanor about him. He told the truth with courage, and yet it, as we shall see, cost him his life. And to Mark's original readers, most likely there were a bunch of persecuted or soon to be persecuted Christians in Rome. And so Mark is reminding his readers that God's truth will get you in hot water, but also reminding them that persecution and trial is not punishment. It's a sign of your faith. It's a sign that you're being courageous and telling the truth, living the truth. So first of all, we see Jesus. He's the model of truth. Um, in front of us. But the second thing we, we notice then in, in this text is, is that there is a warning of living the truth. There is a warning for us. There, there's Jesus in, in the trial that night, standing alone in the most intense scrutiny of, of the, uh, the most clever individuals in all of Israel, 
great courage under severe opposition. And then we have Peter. In verse 54, it already tells us at the beginning. It's another one of those sandwiches, you know, uh, with two bits either side of the, the, uh, the story in the middle. And there's Peter in verse 54, following him at a distance. Mark those words. And what is he doing? He's warming himself by the fire. And then in verse 67, after we read the account of what's going on with Jesus, in verse 67, there's Peter warming himself by the fire. Jesus is going under trial, and yet Peter seems to be having a a trial of his own outside. And yet Peter's trial is nothing like Jesus' trial. Peter's trial consists in the open air, in a place of relative comfort, warming himself by the fire, freedom of outdoors. Jesus had none of that. Jesus had the whole Sanhedrin bearing down upon him. Peter had a servant girl of the high priest. That was his interrogator. Not demeaning a servant girl in the slightest, but it's hardly the same extent as the entire weight and fury of the Sanhedrin, is it? And who do you think stood up to truth? The interrogation begins with the servant girl, probably a young teenager herself. You were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said to Peter. He shows his class in verse 68. He says he denied it. He didn't just deny it a bit or sort of change the truth a little bit. He denied it emphatically. He said in verse 68, I neither know nor understand what you mean. What a pile of rubbish. Of course he did. And then it said the cock crowed. And, and, and she came at him again. She said, no, 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 you're definitely one of them. And he said in verse 70, again, he denied it. Finally, some bystanders heard him, heard his accent. No, 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 you're, you're, you're one of them because you're a Galilean. They heard his northern accent. And he denied it a third time. And this time, he, he denied it in the strongest possible way. He, he called on God and, and said, in the name of God, almost like he's you know, pledging allegiance, I suppose, calling down upon him a curse. If I'm wrong about this, I do not know this man of whom you speak, he said. And immediately it tells us the cock crowed a second time. And he wept. Fell to pieces. What a contrast between those two trials. What do, you, what do you think Peter was actually doing there all along? I mean, he was the only disciple, apostle that, that we know of that was stood there. What, what was he trying to do? P- Peter thought, you see, that he was being faithful to Jesus. Remember a few weeks ago we saw, you know, Jesus was predicting that, that Peter was going to deny him. All of them were going to be denied. You know, Jesus said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And Peter said, even though they all scatter, all fall away, he's talking to his uh, fellow apostle colleagues, even though they might flee, I will not, he says. He says emphatically in verse 31, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. That was Peter. And here we are, seeing him getting taken apart by the servant girl outside in the fresh air, warming his hands. But I think in Peter's mind, this was him being faithful to Jesus. This was him not falling away. The others were not there, to be fair. It was Peter on his own. This was him thinking he was sticking close to Jesus in his mind. 
But he was maintaining a safe distance, wasn't he? He, he was warming himself. He was close enough to feel that he was being good to his words, but yet he was far enough away to know that he could get away quickly if needed. Um, I, th- I, think, I think Peter let himself for a moment here, one or two moments, let himself believe that he was being a good disciple. Good boy. Well done, Peter. He, 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 he thought he was doing the right thing, and yet all the while he was staying at a safe distance. He thought he could have the best of both worlds. You know, as we say, he thought he could have his cake and eat it. But when it came to choosing Jesus or safety, he disowned Jesus in style and ran away. First, we had the full confession of Jesus as God and Christ. And then here we have the first outright denial that anyone ever knew him. The chief priest, it seems, unwittingly called Jesus God and Christ. The chief apostle unapologetically denied he knew all about him. But denotes that Peter's behavior um, is, is, is progressive. Yes, he remained at a safe distance, just near enough to associate with Jesus. But yet when, it was, when he was challenged, you notice in verse 68, uh, when he was challenged the first time, I neither know nor understand what you mean, and he went out into the gateway. He's already heading towards the exit. Moved away a bit more, distanced himself a little bit more away from Jesus. That's what he did. I think, unfortunately, uh, many Christians today Many, many Christians, I should say, in inverted commas, resemble Peter. They, they, they feel like they're just close enough to be associated with Jesus when all is well and wear the label with pride, when it works for them. And yet they have found it advantageous to maintain a safe distance from him, just in case they need to pull back if necessary. So they have cultivated a kind of religion and a kind of faith where there is a space between them and Jesus, space to wiggle, you know, space to flex if needs be, space to back out completely if warranted, apply a bit of pressure, such as hostility, or, or in any way where the cost of Jesus is being felt, and they will turn around and head for the exit. That's what happens. They'll say, what Jesus? Never heard of him. I don't know this man you're talking about. And so they do their best to blend into the shadows, just taking a step away from the light. Just fading away to safety. I think it's fair to say that um, I've certainly seen plenty of this over the last few years. I'm sure you have too. Um, you know, coming out of COVID, I'm sort of arguably still in it, but sort of coming out the other side... And we've seen many people who profess Christian faith who yet have always maintained a safe distance from Jesus. And as a result of the challenge of COVID and being away from church, they have, they have backed away, progressively, just backed away from Jesus. And it's not the physical Jesus that they've backed away from, of course, not like it was in Peter's time, but it's the body of Christ, the church, right? The people of Jesus. That's where we see it. So whether it's been COVID or other, other testings, such as health issues, 
or maybe it has been a direct challenge to someone's faith and what they really believe from friends or, or, or family or co-workers. Whatever it has been, a significant number of Christians in our neck of the woods have been exposed when their faith has been tested. And when faith is tested, by the way, it will expose uh, what's really going on. It'll declare what's always been there all along. It's just sort of come up to the surface. And so they wander away progressively, safety, distance, blending into the shadows. And before we know it, what Jesus? I have no idea. I wonder if you recognize this in yourself in any way. Recognizing this sort of phenomenon of, of pulling back a little bit, cooling off, skipping church. If you recognize some of this in yourself, then please re just receive Peter's example here as a, a warning of living the truth. Um, he assumed that he was closer to Jesus than he really was. And when the pressure came, he realized he wasn't as close as he thought he was. And he denied Christ. Just wandered off. It's the warning of living the truth. We've thought of the model of living the truth in Christ. And finally then we'll look at the challenge of living the truth. Jesus claimed, it says here, to be Christ and God. And they eventually executed him for that. As a blasphemer. But I want to look at his answer here to the high priest. He didn't just say, I am, and that was it. He said, I am uh, Christ and the Son of the Blessed in verse 62. And you will see, he says, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What is that about? What a strange thing to say if you said that in court. Guilty, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Maybe, as we read this, and if you've been around church uh, for any length of time, you might assume um, that this means the second coming of Jesus. You know, we talk about the second coming. He came once, and then he'll return again, as we've been singing. Um, the blazing sun shall fill, fill the sky. We were singing that earlier. Um, maybe that's what you're thinking when you read this, that oh, yeah, he's going to come again, and he will. But you see, Jesus says to those gathered to him in verse 62, you will see the Son of Man. Something to his accusers, they will see the Son of Man coming in power. So what does he mean? What is Jesus getting at in this slightly obscure answer of his? Well, Jesus is pointing us back to uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is one of the old, great Old Testament prophets. And Daniel, uh, at one point in his, his prophetic career, I suppose, saw a vision of heaven and, and the Ancient of Days, the other, otherwise God Almighty. And it says that the son, in this vision of Daniel, the Son of Man, this human figure, this glorified, resplendent, wonderful human figure, it says, was coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, coming to God, God Almighty. And when he came to God on the clouds in the presence of God, it says that he received the kingdom of God. He received dominion. He received power. He received authority over all things and all people. That's what happened in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. And it seems to be that Jesus is evoking this phrase 
And he's saying to those who accuse him, you will see this happening in your day. What could he possibly be getting at? He said, you will see me vindicated. You will see me being installed in power beyond a shadow of doubt. You will see me triumph over evil. You will see me being given the place of honor, the name above every name. When will that happen? It happened at the resurrection. When Jesus beat death, the grave could not hold him. Evil had no hold over him. And it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt when he rose from the grave that his claims are true. That he really is Christ and God. The resurrection was the seal of approval. It was the stamp of authenticity. It put beyond doubt his claims. See, the central act of the cross and the the resurrection with its interpretation was that thing that sent the apostles, including Peter, out on mission for Jesus to proclaim the good news. It was that very thing, that very resurrection and the coming of the Son of Man in power. As Jesus was raised from the dead, it was that message that removed them from the shadows, that turned them from being cowards who hid away into individuals who courageously stood up for the truth and walked into the eye of the storm in order to tell the world about Jesus. They courageously laid their lives down to see that message going out. That's what they did. They weren't mad, of course. They weren't delusional. They weren't stupid. They did this because it was true. And Jesus is really who he said he is. And so as followers of Jesus here gathered this morning, it is the same. It is the calling of the church, we could say, to live the truth, to carry on this movement that Jesus and his apostles began. We have to be willing to speak the gospel and to demonstrate its effect and its power of the cross and the resurrection through our words and our deeds. It's the calling of the church. We just do what we see Jesus doing. Our vision here at Foundation Church Belfast is to catalyze gospel transformation in this city and this nation through renewal and resourcing and replication. You can go read about it on our website. But it's another way of saying that the gospel of Jesus as Christ and God is important and we want it to go out as far and wide as possible. We want God's power to come. We want to, uh, and when we see that, we'll expect huge impacts to be made across our city and across the island. As an application of this, we want to see multiple churches across Belfast, maybe five or ten, maybe a dozen, churches across Belfast serving their communities and yet linked together as one sort of federation or partnership, if you like. All for one and one for all. Doing together what we we could not do alone, but doing alone what we could not do as one big group. And we have real opportunities as a church to take those first steps into establishing gospel transformation in a different community. In fact, next week as we go to baptize in Clarewood Church, we have an opportunity there to see a new gospel work for Jesus being established in that church, in that community. It's currently an empty building. 
the first fruits perhaps of what God wants to do through us. And yet we want to look beyond our own city and, uh, and we want to, with faith, believe that when a renewed and strengthened church in Belfast comes about, that is good news uh, for the towns and, and villages south of the border. It's good news for the entire island. And so we want to also, by the grace of God, see a wider range of renewal either with existing churches or replication through the, the, the starting of new churches. South of the border, city-wide, island-wide. Maybe we could shoot for one church in each province within the next 10 years. Maybe we could shoot for one partner or plant church in each county in the next 25 years. Who knows? God is good. Why am I saying all this to you this morning? What has this got to do with our text? Most Christians that you'll meet will say they want some form of renewal or revival. They want to see the church growing again in strength. They want to see reform. You know, they want to see the power of God come. They want more of Jesus. Amen to that. And yet, when I've been reading this text, I've, I've been grappling with this question. What if revival and persecution always come together? What if living the truth always comes with suffering? Because it did for Jesus. Would you still be enthusiastic for the advance of the gospel across our nation if you knew it would guarantee you a bit of suffering? Additional to what you've already got, by the way. Would you still be so full of vision if you knew it was going to cost you? What if we can, as a church, be used in some wonderful way to bring renewal somehow or other to this island? But what if we knew that I would guarantee that we would suffer greatly in doing so? Would you still be on for it? Or would you look for a bit of comfortable space in the shadows? Peter kept at a safe distance. For such a time as this, he thought, I can pull the escape cord and get out quickly because it started to become too costly for him. He lived the truth out until it cost him. And then he tapped out. Jesus, however, we can see, lived the truth to the end. He stayed focused, stayed on mission, as we would say. The, the writer of, of the letter to Hebrews in the, in the New Testament says to the church, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus didn't go through the cross because he was looking forward to that bit. He didn't accept suffering because there's something wrong with his mind. He accepted that on himself because he looked to the joy, the other side of his suffering. What was that joy that, that, that held him to the cross? It was his bride. It was his people, his kingdom. It was you. That's why he lived the truth to death. 
He did that to win you back. He didn't bend or, or flex like we do. He didn't squirm. He didn't run for the shadows. He didn't take a, an easy route out, and he could have. He never failed. He lived the truth to the end because of the joy set before him. And you see, it's only when you see what Jesus has done for you that he lived this truth for you and died for you. So when you grasp that in the deepest parts of your heart and your mind, that you will be emboldened to give your life to following him wherever it will take you, whatever it will cost you. You will look at Jesus and say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Maybe a little suffering isn't so bad for me after all. If he did that for me, then I'll do anything for him. So may I encourage you to move out of the shadows and live the truth for Jesus. Let's pray.